when you begin to observe that you are an observer, that other observers from different cultures, different moments in history and so forth, they did see a very different world. When you begin to see that, something magic begins to take place. For instance, you begin to realize that there is a connection between the way you see the world, you observe the world, you, the observer that you are, and the actions that you take. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Inside Out Career Design Podcast. My name is Nicola Vetter, and I'm here with my co-host and husband, Peter Extel. And our guest today is Julio Olaya. Julio is a thought leader who is known as one of the great philosophers of our time, who leaves his audiences changed forever after hearing him speak. As a trained lawyer, he worked for the Chilean government before he made a big shift and moved to the U.S. And Julio is the visionary founder of the Newfield School of Ontological Coaching that we went to and one of the pioneers in the ontological coaching and transformational learning fields. He challenges traditional thinking and learning and generates a new way of learning that helps us navigate the anxiety and turbulence facing our global community. That's why we were so excited to talk with Julio, because it's an essential skill to have in this day and age. And in our conversation, we talk about the collective challenges we face and how the crisis of our modern age leads to a collapse of a worldview of modernity. Why breaking our unconscious assumptions that are at the core of everything we do is so liberating. How wisdom is completely different from knowledge how you can shift the observer you are to see a very different world that makes room for magic to happen. How escaping the negative imprints from our family history can help us shift the observer we are to create a new and sustainable future. We also talk about what true love means and a profound lesson about gratitude that he learned from his father. And now it's time to listen and learn from Julio. Welcome, Julio. We are so happy to have you with us today. You know, uh, you have a very dear place in our hearts, as it was the Newfield School of Coaching that brought Peter and I together. And It was a place of healing for my soul. So in 2013, as Novit's filmmakers, we interviewed you about your purpose in the world and captured the essence of your being. And today we'd like to bring some of that magic back and take it a step further. Thank you, thank you, thank you very much. Thank you for the invitation. I'm so glad to be with you. Yeah. So, but first, in your 20s, you've had several defining moments in your life, what we would call 
the what's next moments. When you had to flee Chile, then Argentina, then arriving in the US and your meeting with Umberto Maturana and Fernando Flores that changed your view of the world forever. Mm -hmm. Please take us on that journey mm -hmm. back in time. Yeah. Just to give you a little background, there are other moments before the 20s in my life that they are so present that let me tell you a little bit about them. Okay? For instance, I, I, my father was a civil war from a Spanish refugee. And the he was in my life very, very important, but he taught me in many different ways something that uh, is for me critical in life, gratitude. And I remember so well from him so many times, so many occasions, but there's one that if you allow me, I can tell you a little bit about. My father was one day having lunch by himself for whatever reason. My mother may be out doing whatever, and he was by himself. And in front of him, there was a tomato salad. And he called me. I was playing somewhere. I was at that time eight years old. And he said, Julio, come here. I said, what do you want, daddy? And he said, what is this? that I have here. And I laugh, I said, of course, daddy, I know that is a tomato salad. Uh -huh. And he said, no, my son, this is a miracle. Hmm. He went through so much, he was so hungry through the whole war in Spain. I'm telling you, months eating rats and leaves and whatever that for him, he learned to appreciate so much little things. And, and through, through years and years in my life, his message of gratitude was growing and growing and growing and has been so much of a gift for him. I can never forget that. Well, then, my parents divorced and I, I went to live in in Santiago. I was not living in the capital city in Chile. I was living in the southern city. But we moved and uh, those were very tough years. I miss my father so, so much. They were difficult times. But anyway, I went to school. Uh, I was living in a home of uh, relatives of my mother and and when I grew in, in, in the situation, Chile was living a very critical moment in Chilean history. That was a time when, well, the whole world was immersed in the Cold War, right? And uh, in Chile, there were clearly a division in politics between one side and the other side, and there was all of that. I studied law. And when I was at the university, also 
these were moments also of enormous uh, trembling, every corner of our existence in, in Chile at that time. I got married, and um, I have a daughter at that time. And when the Chilean thing exploded and we have the coup d'etat, because I was working uh, in a government um, department, uh, and the situation was so ugly, it was so dangerous. I'm not going to go into details, but I decided to leave Chile. Let's go, my wife, let's go. And we went to Argentina. <laughs> my dear friends, looks like a joke, but in, I lived the most difficult days in Argentinian history in Buenos Aires. There was a, there, there was a coup d'etat there was a lot, the, the, the president of Argentina died also. Well, there was dramatic, dramatic issues. A military government took over and on and on and on and on. And I saw so much violence, so much, it was so ugly. Everything was happening was horror. And after living four years there, I decided with my wife to leave and we came to the USA. That was in 1978. And then, as you said in the introduction, I was living in California where I met Fernando Flores, who had been a minister in the government in Chile, but I never met him personally. And I was in many occasions with Humberto Maturana, such a wise human being, my goodness. He died not too long ago, as you know. Um, and with them, the whole thing began. The whole thing, I mean, what brought me to this place in which I have lived since then. I began to participate in programs, in different programs and events of different sorts, learning from this gentleman, plus other magnificent teachers at that time. But I realized, little, little by little, as I was going through that, that all my learning, all my knowledge was trapped in an invisible trap. Why I was learning. What I was after when I learned anything. And I realized that a lot of unconscious assumptions like all of us live under where at the core of everything I was doing. And when I was able to break that, that was a liberation. Learning before was about having information. Learning before was about control. Prediction and control. Learning was about productivity and on. Suddenly I discover that learning is immensely bigger than that. And I realized also that every person that I began to see in those programs that I began to even begin to lead some of them at that time, people were absolutely 
in, in a deep desire, even if sometimes they didn't even know that they had a desire, to have a learning that has something to do with their inner being, with their souls. And I realized then that, and I said this, you have heard me many times saying this, the learning of our time is collapsing. The knowledge of our time is collapsing. Not that it's all bad or anything like that, but we have arrived to be so sophisticated technologically, so rich in many ways, so and there's profound pain all over the land. Everywhere I go since then, people say, I have this, I have that, I learned this, I learned that, but I need more. What could And I said, more of the same wouldn't do it. And this, the beginning of the work I've been doing for 35 years or something, is listening to that deep longing that we are not even not aware of the longing we are having. So that would be, in some way, a way of speaking about what you were asking me, Nicola. So you told us that you had this realization that you're responsible for the world you see and that you surrender to your love for the world. Mm -hmm. And Julio, this is so profound and beautiful. And it came along with the realization about the observer you mm -hmm. are being. Yeah. So for our audience, what does that mean, mm -hmm. the observer you are being? Yeah. Well, one of the things that we, <laughs> so we observe the world. And observe doesn't mean to see with eyes or ears or mouth, nothing. It, it, we are in touch with the world. But our view of the world, our, the way we see, we observe the world, is transparent to us. We think that I see what is out there. What else will I want to see? Everybody will see the same thing. What is extraordinary is to realize that is not the case. And not only that, one of the biggest realizations is this. When you begin to observe that you are an observer, that other observers from different cultures, different moments in history and so forth, they did see a very different world. When you begin to see that, something magic begins to take place. For instance, you begin to realize that there is a connection between the way you see the world, you observe the world, you, the observer that you are, and the actions that you take. And even if you are living in a big pain, in an enormous trouble, in issues of different sort, if you keep observing the world the same way, you will be acting the same way. How could you act any other way? And when we, therefore, in our programs, allow people to observe themselves observing, and that begins to be a new awareness, 
a new realm of actions and possibilities comes up. So this, I mean, a lot of this is in line with our Buddhist teachings that the observer, uh, what we would call witness consciousness, mm -hmm. observing the world. And so I imagine that people who are trying to figure out what, what to do, what's next, they have gotten themselves into some sort of difficulties where they're, they're dissatisfied with their lives the way they are or their job or where they want to go next or trying to make these decisions and have some wisdom and some, some kind of guidance to help them make these decisions mm -hmm. because something inside of them wants, wants to make some kind of a change. Right. So can you extrapolate on that, on the mm -hmm. observer of the world? You're, you're going to teach me, okay, you're observing this and I'm kind of dissatisfied with my life or my job and, mm -hmm. and how you can help me to see things in a little bit different way. Yeah. Well... The service is, is constituted in so many ways, but I'm going to point to three elements that are essential in the way that we observe reality. One is language. And very, very much we say, well, language allows me to say what is so. That's so obvious, right? That's the obviousness in which we are trapped. But I said, have you gone to see the sky in a starry night by yourself? What do you see up there? Stars, stars, beautiful stars. That's what I see. Okay. I've been watching the skies many times, and up to a time I saw that just stars. But go there with the astronomers. And that person begins to tell you what's up there, and then you will begin to see, for instance, constellations. For instance, planets, and on and on and on. And then you will say, wow, I never saw a constellation, but you were looking up there. How could you not see it? Well, language allows for a distinction to allow you to see something that otherwise you wouldn't. But this is just about seeing. But that happened with listening. What happened when you go and listen to a music? Um, lovely. But then you listen to the same music and you have a few musician next to you that suddenly interrupts you and said, did you hear that? Did you hear that? And they said, no, no I didn't. But didn't you hear that? Play it again. Wow, I never heard that. You have the same ears, but you couldn't hear that because you didn't have the distinction. But it, it also happened with taste. How many times you eat? Oh, lovely, I like it. And the, the cook came to you and said, did you notice in the background a little flavor to almond? I know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> And then on. So suddenly, because you are now enriching the world of distinction, you are seeing, you are observing, you are hearing, you are taste, everything begins to enlarge. So the awareness that we are observers, and amazingly, at least it may see, be seen, right? 
is that we observe the world, but we don't observe how we observe until something like this begins to happen. But look at this besides language. You don't see the same world if you are in fear or you are in enthusiasm, you are sad, or you are engaged in a profound uh, depression. You don't see the same reality. And I'm taking something very short in this case, but this is enormous territory that constitutes the world we see. Look at different cultures. Have you noticed that the emotional world in Japan is very different, for instance, than the one in America? And I'm, saying, I'm not saying better or worse. Or, no, 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 no. But if you go to South Africa, the emotional world in South Africa is very different than, for instance, in Mexico. But that is not trivial. These different cultures see the world differently and therefore construct whatever they do in a different way. I heard you teach yeah. that it's important to understand ourselves as an ongoing history. And this comes mm. back to the point of culture and to the point of your inheritance. Yeah. So that we are a, a product of our culture and family, yeah. uh, but that we are not aware of our inheritance. Yeah. And I think that is a really deep idea. Yeah. How can we become aware of our yeah. inheritance? And once aware, what can we do yeah. with that knowledge in our yeah. daily life, Julio? Well, well, let me tell you, my dear Nicola, that is a wonderful question. And I, I never abandoned that question in my life. I, I don't want to pretend that, oh, I have the whole... No, 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 no. It's such a reach when you are asking, we are looking at right now. For instance, I learned to speak Spanish. I didn't choose it. Do you know that I didn't choose that? And when I learned to speak Spanish, I began to speak with a Chilean accent. Do you know that? I didn't choose that either. And suddenly I began to think with a particular accent. I didn't choose that either. What happened? Well, I began my life as part of a particular culture. And I'm not saying right or wrong. That has nothing to do with it. It's just a particular culture. And my whole view of the world, the observer that was constituted, was constituted in that culture. Then when I went for the first time out of my country, and I went to visit someone in, uh, it was in um, Panama. And then The, the, the plane landed. I was with my mother then. I, I, I don't know how age, but I probably was 10 years old, 11. And the plane landed. And then people began to talk to me, and I couldn't understand why they spoke so weird Spanish. Because the only real way to speak Spanish was mine. So little by little, different experiences, and I traveled a lot in my life, began to show me this extraordinary phenomenon, the different cultural, different history, manifest in different observers. 
And, and this is magic when you look at it. It's extraordinary. Why didn't I see the world the same way that people in Singapore saw it? And then it's very easy. They are wrong. And that's the whole thing is resolved. They are weird. That's all resolved. So instead of appreciating history, we begin to live history like right and wrong. You are wrong because you speak and think in a particular way. I'm right because of whatever. But when you embrace history, respect for other human beings grows immensely. Immensely. Every culture has brought some gifts, some perspective, some... But if we respect that, there's beauty there. You know that I, I lived 12 days with a tribe in the Amazon forest in South America. And I respected these people deeply. Therefore, I listened to them deeply. I learned so much from them. Of course, I have a person that was translating me. But look the way they relate to the trees, to the water, the way they relate to the animals, the way to, are you with me? was so profoundly different and incomprehensible at the beginning to me. But fortunately, I, have le I had learned at that time to have respect for other observers. So I was 12, year, 12 days with them, deeply respecting them, deeply, and listening. And I discovered a magic world that I never imagined. Never. Mm. And you know what? As legitimate as mine. I think it's so profound, Julio, because, I mean, I can feel that as well as being German. And there is not such a huge difference, but there is quite there a difference quite a between difference. the the German, my German inheritance, mm -hmm. and uh, how people in the U.S. act. Yeah. So I can feel that definitely mm -hmm. as well. And I believe that it's so important, especially these days, to understand the observer that we are mm -hmm. being and the observer that others are being in order to really get together and create and, and respect be in a better place respect each other uh, thank you so much for yeah. this i think this is a rare idea julio in this day and age we we tend to have this is my culture mm -hmm. i think this is the right way to be i think this is the right mm -hmm. culture but you're flipping this whole thing on its head to say i have my own culture i embrace that and because i embrace my own culture now, I can embrace your culture as well. Right. Would that not change the world right. if we could get more people just to view that right. appreciation for each other's differences in their culture? Yeah, that's extraordinary to see. You know that as a kid, I traveled with my mother, remarried with a man that worked in an airline, and therefore I have free trips. I traveled <laughs> to whatever place at that time. But when, when I listened at the beginning, as I said, my surprise was huge, of course. But little by little, 
when I arrived to the USA, and I began to work, as I said, with the people that you mentioned, Nicola, at the beginning, and others, and I began to listen to how the culture constitutes us in a particular observer in so many profound ways. For instance, a German and a French live in a different emotional world. Do you know that? But then there we are. Depends on who is speaking, right? There we are. They're strange. Why do you do that? Oh, those French. Oh, those Germans. <laughs> you know what? And, and living in different emotional contexts constitute a different world. If you are in Japan, you, some emotional things in Japan would be incomprehensible for someone in Latin America like me. But suddenly, when you put yourself in a place of learning from that, respecting that, before even beginning to learn, respecting that the other human being belongs to a different history. And by the way, excuse me, Nicole, by the way, not only now, historically in the sense of the culture, you also belong to another history within your culture, is your family history. Your family history, the, the incidents within the family, a kid that in the family was mistreated or whatever, that history, boom, is in place. You may live your life holding that, owning that, being formed by that history and aware of that. In many occasions in our programs where people finally discover they have been trapped in an emotional learning when they were kids, and they can move away from that place, a new world comes in front of them. And, and it's moving to me to see a human being that was trapped in a view, shifting the view, because, for instance, emotionally, as I said, discovered, getting in touch with something bigger, different, gives me a profound hope from humanity. Think of the kids that are growing up right now in Ukraine. You think that that history will not be with them and their children and their grand great children. Yeah. And history comes back to you in a way. I'm just, you know, I, I'm so grateful that my mom passed in 2019 and didn't need to live through that trauma of war in Europe yeah. again, yeah. because she experienced World War II, which was horrendous for our family. Oh my gosh. But anyhow, Julio, mm. I would just like to get back to knowledge. Yeah. Because your approach to knowledge is not, as you say, an intellectual curiosity, mm. but a matter of your heart mm. and the healing of your soul. You suggest a new way of knowledge instead mm. of just gathering more information, which mm. you said at the beginning, but speak a little more to this new way. Yeah. Well, there are so many things that we can engage because this is such a topic that you present in front of me. Who oh, is such a topic? 
Let me begin with little things just to open the space that you're opening with your question. Mm -hmm. When I went to school, I got good grades, you know how? By having answers. Yeah, there we go. That was it. I have answers. I got good grade. Nobody in school gave me a good grade for my questions. So I learned to believe that knowledge is having answers. And I discovered later in life that I was trapped there like most of us are trapped. Another thing. In school, they taught me that the result of knowing was a place of certainty. You know, when you arrive to certainty, you have arrived to, now you know how things are. And when you arrive to that moment in life, you stop learning. Truly, that moment kills us the possibility to open it. Learning is infinite, it's non-stop. Just that creates a completely different place for people. For instance, instead of looking for certainty, what if knowledge looks for wonder? Can you imagine moving to a different emotional context to hold learning? And then, well, there's infinite ways to go there, but that, just that, holding knowledge in a particular way, holding learning in a particular way, it's not a trivial matter, but it's completely transparent to us. Do you know what is learning? Of course I know what is learning. Do you know what is knowing? Come on, of course I know what is knowing. <laughs> it's obvious. But if you ask the same question in the Middle Age, in the Middle Ages, you ask the people, what is knowledge? What is knowing? They will give you a completely different answer. Also transparent to them. And when we have a different comprehension, not knowing, appreciation or whatever, a relationship, a definition of what is knowledge, we act very different in life when it comes to learning. When we, are, when we begin to be aware that we live in thousands of unconscious assumptions, and I say thousand, I could say maybe more than just thousands, some freedom begins to be in front of us. How so? Expand on that. For instance. The freedom. For instance, um, we have just some sense of what is love. What is love? Well, you, of course I know what love is. Give me a break. Yeah, but the comprehension, the understanding, the way we're holding love in different moments in history has been different. And again, if we were able to go to Middle Ages or the Roman Empire or some other times, and we ask what is love, the answer would be very different. But the answer about most things, what is work? What is work? What is war? What is fight? What is dignity? 
doesn't matter what question we ask. We already have an unconscious conception. We said, that's the way it is. Give me a break. How? Of course I know. That trap is powerful, Nico. Yes, you were saying something. And that comes back to culture again, because we don't even need to go back in time. We can just go right. Go to other cultures in this time and yeah. see how they have a different kind of knowing. They have a different kind of wisdom that they bring into the world. Yeah. And so you, you say often that we don't learn from knowing if we lose the concern for wisdom. And I love one, one particular thing that you taught us. You recommended falling in love with questions yeah. again <laughs> as, as guides, because wisdom, and I quote you here, is a love affair with questions, mm -hmm. whereas knowledge is a love affair with answers. Yeah. And I just love that distinction. Mm -hmm. And I would love to for you to make mm -hmm. this a little more actionable also for our audience to understand. Yeah. yeah. Well, knowledge in the way we hold it, when we, when we think I know, means I have an answer and therefore that's the way things are. And you know that you can live your life. Well, let me put it in a simple way. I've met people in my life that have so many answers, so many, and they know nothing, literally. You will not like to live with them. <laughs> and I, but, but they have answers for everything. And I've known people, like some people in the Amazon, some people in the Eastern world, some people in the uh, other places in the planet, different people. They didn't have so many answers, but what a wisdom, what a joy there. What a simple, simple way to embrace life. But there was generosity, there was appreciation, there was a profound desire to be of service. And that for me is already simply extraordinary. And if you realize, in, for instance, when I read people that I consider to be wise, I end the books, for instance, and I'm full of questions. I'm, now I need, oof, some, my world grew. <laughs> wow, I have so much in front of me suddenly bigger than ever. But not only that, I begin to see people that I have next to me with a profound sense of belonging or some or surprise or wonder about them rather than arriving to the place that I already know them. I know them. I there's, there's beauty there. Just looking at that. But it's not, and it's, it's not a strange that we in our language, and not only in the Spanish language, all languages on earth, have the distinction, wisdom, and knowledge. Isn't it interesting? 
you must have been reading my mind, Julio, because <laughs> I wanted to circle back to one of the main things that we teach that, of course, you taught us that we learned at Newfield, and that is this amazing concept that language is generative. Mm -hmm. Let's hear about, I want to hear everything you have to say. Mm -hmm. Well, Kemp, we only have a few hours here, but <laughs> let's talk about language is generative. I'd like to hear it from your yeah. From you again, please. Well, just to begin, to remind that language generates distinctions, and that already generates a, a worldview, a way to see. But think of this. Let me give you a simple, simple example. For us, the three of us, to be in this moment together, having this conversation, how many conversations it took between us to arrive to this moment? If we hadn't been able to talk between us, this would not be happening. To build a house, you know how many hundreds of thousands of conversations need to take place for a house to be built? Without conversation, it wouldn't. Without requests, without promises, without offers, without assessments, assertions of different sort, that would not be built. Even if you build it in silence, you are full of conversations to build the house. But looks like the house is building is, is a matter of a before this and that, <laughs> thousands of conversations. Look at us right now. Why are we talking? What is happening by talking? Somehow, for me, somehow for you, something begins to go, flow in directions that may be desirable, whatever ways you want to put it. Some, some of them surprising, but language is magic and it's transparent. Do you know so when, when we talk about its ability to generate, yeah. Because we know some of that language of offers and promises, yeah. but our audience does not know this. Yeah. So, so we of course believe that it is able to generate a future, once it is spoken, that did not exist before it was spoken. Yeah. I maybe better say that again. <laughs> it generates the possibility of a future that did not exist exactly. until you actually spoke it. This is not powerful idea. I think I want to build a house. I will build a house. And that puts in motion the idea that a house will be built. What do you have to... I, I think you can expand on <laughs> but that. It, but it, the, the, the brutal part of this, brutal in the sense of the <laughs> hit in our head, is that we constitute reality talking, engaging, being in conversation. And by the way, not necessarily the verbal sounds. You can be mute, but you are in conversations anyway. Is that clear, right? Language is a lot bigger than the sound of anything or any word. But the thing is this. The, 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 what is immediately at hand in, our, in the common sense in which we are beginning to look at is that that's the world. Here I am, and um, 
I know how things are because I live here. And boom, boom, boom. There's some, some, that comes from a school. That comes from a place where wonder was lost. But, but look at this. Please look at this. How come one day you fall in love, you find a friend, you get to someone that is uh, a relative, doesn't matter. You go there, and one afternoon, one day, one morning, through some moment of conversation, you go out in complete shooks. Wow. Wow. What happened? You were just talking. Yeah, we're just talking. But suddenly that conversation put in front of you something that was simply not there. How many times you have had those conversations when you go out and say, oh, shooks, I never saw that before. But you are in the same world. How come you didn't see it? Well, if we lack some conversations, we are lacking some world. Language is magic. It's absolutely magic. It's, it's, it's extraordinary. I And by the way, just since this came to me, you know that in history, we have lived separated for millennia. I mean, a group of people living in the mountains of South America, people living in some places in Africa, some people living in places in North America, in Asia. But we were so far away because we didn't have ways to meet. Seldom we did it. Well, guess what? We engage in different conversations through time. We follow in some conversational path, some thinking path, and so forth. And we constitute what is called a civilization. Why didn't we build the same thing all together? Why not? If we, if we all see the world the same way, we, we should be doing the same thing. <laughs> We're not. not. Not only that, look at the example of French and Germany. They're next door. Now they're next door. <laughs> Sometimes they were very well away. And they build different realities. And Spain on the other side, another different reality. A different way of speaking, etc., etc., etc. All that magic has been out of ourselves. All our magic. And, and it's, it's, for instance, this issue, uh, let me go back a little bit, of distinguishing, having distinctions. How many times, for instance, you go to the woods and you see trees, a lot of trees. And then you go to the woods with someone that is an arborist. And that person begins to show you with distinction trees that you never saw. You just walk among trees. And suddenly you see one and the other. Different birds, different different. All that was transparent before. So those distinctions create for us this capacity to observe, to see. And you know what? 
time goes and we create new distinctions and the possibility to see, observe different reality. But that is so transparent. It's so invisible in the walking in life. If I think of the students in our programs, when I see them going out with the eyes big and is they, the amazement, the joy has to be with they see a new road. Something, life was like this, I am like that, that's the path, that's it, what the heck? <laughs> that new road, Julio, yeah. brings me to, to the question that we are trying to answer here on the Inside Out Career Design Podcast. One of the big questions is, what's next? Mm -hmm. What's next for my life, for my career? Or mm -hmm. even the back bigger question, what should I do with my life? What road, uh, what yeah. path uh, should I should I take? And it's it's really an age old question mm -hmm. that uh, Shariputra, one of the top uh, disciples of the Buddha, already asked when he said, "How shall I live?" Mm -hmm. So, what is the question you suggest, and how can we approach that? Mm -hmm. It's a lovely question, Maria. The one you are asking is a lovely question. But there's, there's one place to begin, for instance, that road is, how come I do things the way I do things? Just, if you ask that question, and how come this guy in front of that does it very different? You look so simple, well, because it's different. But what, what is so different? What is happening that we constitute? The, the word conversation means changing together. Versation has to do with versatility, change. Now, you show up in this world in a particular moment in history. Therefore, there is already a view of reality and a road for people who are born in that moment. But there are moments in history, moments in history, and my belief is that we are living one of those moments, when a particular view of the world doesn't serve us anymore. Boom, doesn't serve us anymore. Now. We don't say that. We don't say this view of the world doesn't help me. No, we don't say that. You know how every time that humankind in history has changed a worldview, a perspective of reality has happened because some collapse took place. The previous worldview was insufficient to deal with the crisis created with that worldview. Therefore, collapse happened. Like after a thousand years, the Middle Ages, boom, collapse. And a new worldview, we are in that worldview called modernism. Now, what happened today? And I'm going to, a quote that I love in my life, Einstein. 
the crisis we have created with this worldview, with this level of consciousness, cannot be resolved with the same worldview, with some level of consciousness. Therefore, humanity today is extraordinarily effective technologically in so many ways. Economically, we have produced in now in a year with, before it took us hundreds of years, and on and on and on and on. So, so we have exploded in some direction. But that worldview has created islands of plastic in the oceans, the destruction of forest. Even if we care about that, we keep doing the same thing. What's happening as a couple, we have crisis and we keep in the same crisis, the same kind of fight, the same issues. Yeah. How come? Well, that crisis that we created with this particular perspective of reality cannot be resolved with that same perspective because in that same perspective comes the same actions. So suddenly, suddenly, and this is for the first time in human history, we can aim to a shift in our worldview, in our consciousness, consciously. This is new. And this is this profession. So how do you suggest people get on a path uh, to a more fulfilling, you know, a more meaningful life? Mm -hmm. Well, a lot has to do with many of the things we have touched here. First of all, We produce crisis. For instance, the, let me go to the ecological crisis. We produce it, not because we don't care. In the sense that it's simply, well, I, I need the wood because I need to build things, and I need the ocean because it's okay, and I need plastic for whatever. Yeah, but that thing is damaging this, and what can we do? No, but what can we do? This is... So in other words, in the logic in which I live, yes, it's sorry that that is happening, but what else can we do? The same thing. Then, then we begin to say, begin to see what will it take to change a worldview. By the way, I have that question, and believe me, I don't think I have even close to an answer. <laughs> I think one of the answers. And I don't want to jump into answers, but no, it's from no, my no. own experience here, is really taking action. So about how long ago is that, 12 years ago or something, I was fighting in Germany mm -hmm. against the big Bayer Corporation wow. because they were putting into the earth CO pipelines, which yeah. if they got destroyed, would kill in a matter of minutes tons and tons of people that were living in in that mm. area yeah. so coming back to to everything you taught us here now i think it is a matter of seeing 
and a matter of really understanding with different eyes, mm -hmm. understanding what might be happening here and what is it that I, as, a, as the small individual, mm. could eventually do about it, get mm -hmm. into action, do mm -hmm. something that might heal. And up to this day, I can mm -hmm. say that this pipeline has not, it's in the earth, but it's not oh. been used. For over 12 years, they are doing this fight there. Look at the beauty of what you are saying. Look at the beauty of that. Suddenly, you say, it's obvious that this is a potential damage. Mm -hmm. But then the obviousness in the other side is that, yeah, that could happen, but Look at the benefits for us, the economy, and blah, 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 blah. So for that observer, could be not necessarily that they are evil. That's not the point. It's in their view. Their view, they don't see what you are seeing. Now, at the moment, I, we are giving the example of the plastic in the ocean. Look at in any other territory. Look at the level of depression that exists today on a planetary level. The growth of depression in the last 50 years is amazing. Mm. Look at the growth of depression among American teenagers. How are they depressed? They have so many things to do. Look, the economy is great, the country is big, da -da 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 -da. they should be so happy. Well, they are not. How come? How come? Because one of the crises of every moment that a whole worldview is beginning to collapse is that meaning, purpose disappears. And that's the time. What does it mean to create meaning again? So a term you use is negative self-assessment. Mm-hmm. What is a negative self-assessment? Where does it come from? And what can we do about it? Well, there are so many sources, but one thing is that in our, in our particular understanding of self or I or being, that's ontology behind that, a particular concept of that. The ontology of our times understand ourselves separated from the rest. I am a, this, this is a plant, this, that. Everything is separate, the stars. The, when you look at yourself, in our times, you look at yourself as an island. I am here. Therefore, anything that doesn't work, it's so easy to say, it's my fault, I'm wrong, this is it, this is that. We don't realize sometimes, and I cannot say that it's some moment you can do or come out with that assessment in a particular moment. It's valid. But when that is the place you go constantly, why, why, why am I so depressed? Why am I so sad or something is wrong with me? I've had this conversation with the students in the university some time ago. When they began to, after a moment of generating trust, they began to point, I'm so so depressed, I'm so blah, blah, blah. And then 
when we continue the conversation, they begin to say, well, this is because something's wrong with me, something's wrong with me. And I pointed to that and said, I don't think so. I have a different way to see that. I think you are depressed precisely because you are seeing things that in other times we couldn't see. Do you think that it is that it is having an energy inside of you that is blocked that you're holding on to that is causing you know to flow in your body mm -hmm. that is mm -hmm. keeping you depressed and, and generating these negative thoughts as actually energy blockage mm -hmm. in your body? Yeah, well, there are so many ways in which we can see because I don't think there's only one cause. Mm. But depression is directly for me, and I, cons I, don't, I don't think that it would be the only reason. There could be other reasons, even in, in the realm of chemistry. <laughs> but, but when a human being takes a look at the world and doesn't find sense for it, meaning for it, depression is right there. Look at this, the cosmology of our times. You know that in other times, people saw the stars, the planet, people saw the skies, and they were living, they have meaning, they have purpose. You know, the Pluto being something, and the, the, the moon something, and the sun. Anyway, in the way you want it, doesn't matter, but there was life everywhere. Look at the way we see today the what we call the universe, completely meaningless, purposeless, and it's not my word. Nobel Prizes, and I don't have the quotes right here in front of me, but Nobel Prizes, many of them, good people, intelligent people, but they say the more we know the universe, we do, the more we realize that it's meaningless. Literally. I have the quote, one is a Nobel Prize from biochemistry, the other, but anyway, I have those quotes. Meaningless, the universe. Because if you look at the universe only from the perspective of science, matter and particles and things and physical phenomena and so forth, well, the meaning cannot be found there. But it's the universe in which we live is meaningless. And it's in our common sense beyond, even if you never read any of those <laughs> Nobel Prizes, of course. But when we live in a society that looks around this universe and is meaningless, how can you find meaning? Wow. I, I don't think I have heard that, Julio. You're saying that there are, so there are people who are saying it's, it's determinism almost, that is just meaningless. So what is anybody supposed to do with that? I mean, where is optimism? Where is faith? Where is... No, they, they don't say that like it's a, it's a particular perspective that they have. No, no, they say that's the way it is. It's, it's scientifically proven that this is just matter and particles and doing things in a particular way. And by the way, those people who said that, they are not bad people. They are very good people. But they are they in a particular view of reality. I think that's that's also one of the reasons why out there people nowadays are longing to find some kind of um, 
meaning, some kind of belonging. Mm -hmm. And you would say also real conversations that that help us change together. And so that coming back to what we said at the beginning, so that the differences between us rather become assets, right? Exactly. So can you give us an example of, of someone, a student probably, that really touched your heart of when you witnessed how these differences became assets? Mm -hmm. Well, that, oh my goodness, when I think of the people I've met and the things that I've seen, my dear, you touch, you touch my heart because it's truly, life gave me such a privilege in that matter. But I want to tell you a few stories. One story, for some reason I think is very associated with what we're talking here. We were in the third day of a conference in Latin America. I don't recall exactly where what happened, but there was in this, in the, in the, but among the participants, there was a man who uh, is one of the four, three, four more uh, richer people in Latin America. I, I'm talking rich, you know, rich beyond belief. But anyway, the course went, the program went on, and, and the, I, we were having conversation not too far from what we are having here in many ways. And then the third day, this man raised his hand. Stood up, I didn't know him, I didn't know that he was the rich man that he was. And he stood up and he's, he's, he, I could see he was completely touched, moved. And he said, you know, I'm telling everybody here that I am one of the richest men in this continent. And he was, I said, moved. You know that I have Inimaginable things. I could do things in my life that I understand for most people are inimaginable. I can do anything I want. The only thing I don't have is joy. And I was told since I was a kid, you get rich, you have it all, bingo, you did it, you make it. I, I truly believe completely that I didn't, never thought that it was a perspective, a worldview, or particular interpretation. I thought that that was it. I hold it that way. Until now. Well, that man today created a huge foundation. He's serving many, many. He also learned to play guitar. <laughs> he, it's amazing. He get in contact with art, with music, but serving hundreds of people. And when I've seen him occasionally after, he always says, I found meaning. And that for me, phew, Because it's not only his transformation. Around what, even what he's doing, he's touching the life of many, many people. And that for me, 
is a sign of, let's say for now, hope. I have another conversation that I recall giving your question, Nicole. Nicola. Is this. There was a engineer from country Latin America. A young man could have been 35 years old, something like that. And uh, he raised his hand. I could see that he was very moved. And start talking and about different things he was seeing the program and so forth. And I then in some moment said, I, may I ask you something? He said, yes. I have the sense that what you are saying is not the main thing you want to say. And he was in silence. And I said to him, you may choose not to say, and it's fine with me. But look at this. That silence of you, my interpretation, and I don't know what is read, I'm telling you it has to do with the pain I see in you. And the guy started crying, trembling. So I let him cry. He almost, he went down on his knees. He was completely taken. So I let him cry. The room was in complete silence, listening to him. So he stood up later and said, anyone, anything you want to say, or you remain silent, it's up to you. So he came to me, close to me, and he said, when I was a kid, between two and five years old, I was sexually abused brutally with an ankle of mine. I never said this to anyone. But I, I don't know how to live with that shame. And I asked him, shame of what? What shameful thing did you do? Of course, look what I did. I was, you did that? And they said, I don't think you did it. It was done to you, but she was silent for a moment. And suddenly, another man raised his hand. So may I speak right now? And I asked the engineer, is okay if she speaks? I said, yes. And he said, I can tell you the same story that you live, I lived it. And he said, listening to you right now, I'm healing myself. And those two men hug each other. They were totally moved, of course. But if you see the whole room, all the participants at that time, there were probably 130 people or something in the room, looking at them, And you could see they were embracing them, even if they were not physically doing it, but they could see it, feel it. Those guys, in that moment, had a shift in their lives, but dramatically, and it's 
impossible to even conceive. They finally were able to say something. They finally were able that they have been living in a permanent self-accusation. Self-accusation something that happened to them when they were two, three, four years old. And, and, and for me, when I, I am with them, it's not just witnessing from somewhere, but I am in the, seeing them, I have a profound, profound hope that the same way that I saw these individually could be the healing for humanity later. I can I can really feel that it is a matter of your heart and I remember as it was today the healing that I felt myself when I went it's 10 years ago when I I went through the new field coaching school and what I witnessed so many students alongside me who who had this this healing happening and that's what i would say is makes newfield so special and such a an immense value in this world and i'm so grateful to have you as the founder be with us today and and just get give a little glimpse into what it's like to be mm -hmm. there and to being able to speak your truth and give room for healing beautiful thank you thank you thank you thank you nicole i appreciate it julio mm -hmm. Out of curiosity, who do you consider good role models today? Mm. There are some people that for me, for instance, Mandela for me was extraordinary human being. I admire that man. That man, you know that his presence, his words, avoid a civil war that would be brutal in South Africa. And I don't know if you know the story, what I'm telling you, but if you allow me, I will repeat what happened. I will tell you. Please. You know that he was in jail for 27 and a half years in jail. You know what that is? A whole life, right? 27 and a half years in jail. You know that the, the guards, the people that were in the, in the jail taking care of Oh, that he will be there and so forth, they have to change it regularly because he, they start talking with Mandela and suddenly they love him. Well, but anyway, Mandela at that time, 27 and a half years, was finally free. Political situation, whatever it was, he was decided. And he was immediately taken to the TV. And look at this, what happened there. Mandela was there the journalist in front of him. And the journalist, you need to understand what was happening in South Africa at that time. 
they were at the edge of the horrendous civil war. And Mandela was asked, Mr. Mandela, do you hate white people? Mandela looked at him and he said, no, I don't hate white people. I hate racism. You know that that sentence changed the history of South Africa? Many, many black people said, of course I, I hate white people because this is, well, the white people are, Mandela says, no, this is not the issue. The issue is not, the issue is that I don't hate white people. I hate racism. That distinction produce a new reality. This is power of language, by the way, but it's more than that, it's the power of love, the power of new vision. And that was created by a human being, and that for me is part of the magic that we can exercise in life. And I, I could tell you other people that for me are fascinating people in so many ways. But that for me is a story that, since I was in touch with that, has never left me. One sentence that means a whole new reality. Yeah. Julio, a reality for us <laughs> is that we are coming to an end of this wonderful conversation. Mm -hmm. And it, it would be my wish that we could at some point mm -hmm. have a continuation. And I, I would love to give a last quote from you because you said, if you don't find meaning in the second half of life, you can easily walk right into depression and hatred and anger. Mm -hmm. And it's a lot of what we are seeing these days, unfortunately. Yes. And we have talked about some some ways of healing that, approaching that. But is there something that you would like to leave our audience with in for people who who are desperately trying to find meaning in their lives? Mm probably just one seed of mm -hmm. wisdom, one, one thing that they can put into action. Mm. Well, what a question, my dear Nicola. <laughs> the first thing that comes to me immediately is to say that give yourself room to understand that your pain is our pain. Nothing is wrong with you. This is the pain of the world today, in a particular moment of historical moment for humanity. A whole worldview is collapsing. Please listen carefully. You are culture, your history, therefore the, all these things are touching you. But also, you have the power to realize 
that the history that is owning you, you have the power to be part of the change of that history instead of beating yourself. Beautiful. Yeah. Thank you, Julio. Thank you so much. Thank you for the invitation. We hope you enjoyed this interview. To learn more about Julio, head to whatsnext.com forward slash 30, where we share links and more. Again, that's whatsnext.com forward slash 30. And if you like what you've heard, share it with someone you care about and subscribe, rate and review our Inside Out Career Design Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Or watch it on our YouTube channel, whatsnext.com, and subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. That's where you can also leave your questions about this week's episode or a topic you'd like us to cover in a future episode. We'd love to hear from you. And if you're trying to figure out what's next for you, join us for one of our live and completely free online workshops where we teach how to successfully reinvent your career in midlife. To save your spot in our next live workshop, go to whatsnext.com forward slash workshops. Thanks for joining us today. We'll see you next week for another episode, same time, same place.